Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and the very, very, very soon-to-be-released Simple Homebrewing. And now, between the two of us, we have over 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. So on today's episode, we'll do our usual run of feedback, announcements, all the good stuff that we got coming up, because there's lots of things happening soon. And then we're going to head into the pub to cover the beer news that happened while Wild Denny was away. The world goes on without me, huh? Indeed. Talk about some things in the library and also talk about some things that we're doing in the brewery, including a new project that I launched because I'm an idiot. That, that seems to be the justification for a lot of things you do, man. Hey, look, find your strengths, play to them. <laughs> and then, of course, we're going to go to the lounge segment where in the lounge, well, we're going to make like Rick Steves and take you through Belgium. And the Netherlands. Oh, yes, and the Netherlands. Sorry, can't I can't forget the Netherlands. No, 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 definitely not. And then, of course, quick tip, some questions, and something other than beer before we get you onto your beery, beery way. But before we do all that, take a listen to these messages from the people who make this show possible, and we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association, who invites you to attend HomebrewCon this June 27th to June 29th in Providence, Rhode Island. HomebrewCon brings 3,000 homebrewers together for three days of brewing, seminars, nighttime events, and camaraderie. HomebrewCon is also the leading showcase of brewing supplies and equipment. Visit homebrewcon.org to learn more. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. you all for sticking around and before we get into the main show here we have a few announcements to make starting with episode 62 of the brew files came out last wednesday about a wicked smooth apricot milkshake ipa and drew i hope you can appreciate the fact i said those words without laughing or gagging i was gonna say it's your favorite style but i thought it was a great episode just for listening to two professional brewers talking about a style that's not necessarily in their day-to-day wheelhouse in terms of the beers they make and how they went about constructing this beer and what changes they think they might have to make depending upon what they get out of the tank. So good lesson there. Yeah, man, I, I, I agree that uh, no matter what I think about the style, it was really interesting to listen to them talking about how they went about it. Yep. And, of course, you know, if you want your own can of Wicked Smooth, you'll be able to get it at HomebrewCon next month in Providence, Rhode Island. Which brings us to what we're going to do. We're going to be partnering with our friends from Country Malt Group Homebrew Division. I know that's a 
big mouthful. Uh, you may formally know them as the company formerly known as Brewcraft USA. And we're going to be throwing a party on June 26th in the evening at Isle Brewers Guild. It will run from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. They're going to have multiple tap locations, multiple free sampling stations for the collaboration beers between CMG and the Isle Brewers Guild, outdoor games, live music, giveaways. We'll be doing some hosting, toasting, razzle-dazzling. Uh, there will be free T-shirts to the first 500 people through the gate. There will be multiple food trucks to cover all sorts of dietary needs. And, even better, there are going to be buses running constantly from 6 to 11, bringing people to the site from the convention center for free. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, I think that that's probably one of the coolest parts of the whole thing, other than there's a party. But you guys can get there really easily, get back really easily. So we hope to see you at the party. And another place we hope to see you is on Friday from 2 to 4 p.m., booth 307 on the trade show floor. We're going to be recording a live episode of this podcast. So uh, we'd like you to come by, say hi, maybe ask us some questions that make us look like idiots. That's not too hard, so I think you could do that. So if you're going to Homebrew Con, don't forget 2 to 4 on Friday afternoon at booth 307. We'll see you there. And you'll also have multiple opportunities to get your book signed you know, from the Brewers Publication Store. We're going to be doing two signing attempts. So get there, make sure I have a fresh Sharpie in hand, and we'll get your book signed. You always have a fresh Sharpie in hand, it seems like. I insist. It's in my writer. Yeah, well, you can bring one from me this time. How's that work? You're counting on my memory? Bad idea. <laughs> no, I'm not. And the other cool thing that's coming up that we get to be involved with is the Yakima Chief Hops Hop and Brew School that goes from August 30th through September 2nd. That's uh, Labor Day weekend in Yakima, Washington. It is going to be a killer event this year. They've extended it by a couple days. They've uh, made a real homebrew focus for it. So uh, we hope you can be there. Uh, it kicks off Friday night with an amazing party that, uh, as far as I know, is going to be a bail breaker. Great, great brewery that's set in the middle of a hop field. Beautiful location. There will be uh, music. There will be food. There will be just general fun going on at the party. Saturday, the school runs from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Uh, great thing about it being over by 5 p.m. is you can make your way downtown to the sports center for uh, evening activities. And let me tell you, that is probably the coolest dive bar you'll ever see. Uh, Sunday, it runs from 8 to 6. There are going to be tours of hop fields, hop processing facilities. There are going to be uh, educational sessions. And from 6 to 10 p.m., there's going to be an evening reception. Yes, the party has not ended. And then on Monday from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., one last day of education and fun. That's Hop and Brew School at Yakima Chief Hops. Uh, we'll put up a link for the sign-up for that, and uh, we really hope to see you there. This will be like my fifth or sixth time going. It's a wonderful event, tons of great information, and just great people and a lot of fun. Plus, hops plus hops, but you don't get to jump in them anymore. And don't forget that you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. You can click the AHA, BruceWag.com, code word experimental, Amazon, Brewers Friends, or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... It's Wings of Rescue. It's a great all-volunteer 501c3 organization 
that flies animals from shelters where they would likely be euthanized to no-kill shelters. So uh, let me tell you, it's good people doing good things for good animals, and we hope you'll get involved and toss in a buck or two that we can toss along to them. There we go. And now that we're done with the announcements, it is time for Feedback. So we got a couple of uh, pieces of feedback to help us troubleshoot some things. And our first piece of feedback comes from Sam Loader from our friends over at Bevy, a.k.a. the Grandfather folks. And he's referencing episode 89 with Chris's beer troubleshooting. You remember we had those couple of bottles and couldn't quite figure out what had happened to some of the hop character, right? And so Sam writes in, hey, guys, I'm in the process of catching up on the last few episodes. I am listening to the troubleshooting with Chris on the beer in the keg versus competition bottles. This issue is starting to become a common issue that I see, and this was something that happened to me for every beer for about two months before I figured it out, and primarily seems to affect hoppier beers. I found that the issue was when pumping out the sanitizer from the keg, a significant portion of sanitizer liquid remained in the keg, and what this does is it mutes the hop flavor and aroma, and then adds a slight chemical note to the beer that I've seen is often mistaken for diacetyl. When I give some spike samples in a triangle test to some tasters, this flavor was identified as diastol. It takes about a week or so before it becomes apparent in the beer and sounds about right for what you guys and Chris experienced. The solution is that even though the foam is fine, to really ensure that minimum liquid sanitizer ends up in contact with the beer. Remember, liquid can hide in lines and dip tubes. At least this is an issue that is the result of trying to be sanitary. Well, that's that's very interesting. I'm I guess from the mention of foam that uh, Sam is no doubt talking about star sand. That would be my guess. Huh. Yeah. And I mean, for me, I, I do the full liquid purge thing. And the good thing is that I, I mean, when I purge my kegs, I really purge the kegs and including the dip tubes. So I, I'm guessing that's part of the reason why I, I don't think I've ever seen this problem. Yeah. Well, you know what? I, I don't know how you can avoid having a little bit left in the bottom, you know, maybe only a tablespoon, maybe mm-hmm. a quarter of a cup, but, uh, you know, I know that when I have done the purge and I've been paranoid and taken the lid off and looked in there, there's still a little bit of sanitizer left in the bottom of the keg. Mm. Well, yeah, I've got like one or two kegs that have wonky dip tubes that will leave something in there. And those those are the ones I'm always careful with. But it'll be interesting. I think that it might be an experiment that we want to try. You know, do uh, you know, does that little bit of sanitizer actually cause a problem? So, yeah, I mean, yeah, we could probably come up with something to, to check that out. Our next piece of feedback comes from Ralph Rice, uh, referencing to episode 90, uh, the sweet taste thing, that, talking about the Martzen. And it says, hey, Denny and Drew, in the Q&A portion of episode 90, a person was mentioning that he gets a sweet taste to his beer, an Oktoberfest, I think it was. You mentioned it could be from oxidation, but this didn't quite meet what he was saying. There were some other thoughts about the sweet taste. Could the age of his ingredients be causing this? Could old or stale malts result in a sweeter-than-desired finish? Just a thought, Ralph. You know, I suppose that they could. I don't know why not. Although, you know, in a way, that's probably oxidation again, just in a different form, right? Right. But And the other thing, of course, is you, I think unless you're dealing with extract, they would have to be really stale, I think. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, you know, I, I really don't think, at least from the description that I remember of the beer, I, I really don't think that that was the issue here, but... I'm not discounting the fact that it could be the issue sometime. Yeah, because I'm looking back at the notes for episode 90, and he says, you know, I'm not sure what I would, I'm not sure I would describe it as an off flavor. At least it didn't fit any of the descriptions I've read of common issues, but it's still a flavor I don't like and rarely tastes in the commercial beers I enjoy. 
It's an aroma that I can only really smell when I breathe out through my nose after swallowing my homebrew. It's kind of malty, but not like a good Oktoberfest. It's basically not a clean or crisp flavor. The flavor is slowly decreased over the life of the APA and the keg, but it's still there to some degree. So, yeah, it's interesting yeah, see, to me. And that, that's, that's the weird thing is that he says it's decreased. So, you know, I can't imagine that if it was like due to old ingredients that it would actually be getting better. Huh. Yeah. So it's still a puzzle. If you've got alternate ideas, please let us know because uh, I feel a little flummoxed. Well, you know, one thing I'd like to throw out is confirmation bias. Mm -hmm. There have been times when I thought that I tasted something in a beer, and then no matter what I really tasted in that beer, I couldn't get that idea out of my head. That's true. I've I've noticed that before, where even not even something that you convince that you taste, but you're convinced that the batch is bad because you done screwed up somehow. Yeah, and you'll never have a favorable you'll never have a favorable opinion about that beer. Nope, nope. You'll always think that there's something wrong with it, even if your friends or anybody else can't taste it. So, you know, that's nothing to rule out, but it is. This particular one is a very interesting situation. Yep. And our last piece of feedback for the week comes from Daryl about the Stone Berlin closing. You guys remember uh, Stone closed down their Berlin shop and handed it over to BrewDog, who's also been in the news recently. And Daryl wrote in, guys, love the podcast and was sad to hear the Stone Berlin closing slash sale to BrewDog, although maybe not a bad thing. As an expat living in Germany, going on five years now, I can agree with most of Mr. Koch's rants. Uh, the German craft beer scene is still in its infancy. Uh, even Dr. Rauchman from Braufactum told the guys on craft beer and brewing that Germany's craft beer industry is 20 years behind America. Poorly brewed and or old craft beer is commonplace at even the best of bottle shops. Sadly, freshness is not part of the German beer distribution model. Craft brewers will brew a shipment of IPAs, New England IPAs, pale ale, that will sit on store shelves for months and months, bypassed by a consumer body that is stubbornly against anything other than pills and Weizen. If they do venture to try a craft beer, odds are that it's oxidized, sweet, straw, hopeless mess, strengthening their belief that you don't need anything other than pills or Weizen. A few breweries have it right, Braufactum, Crew Republic, Frau Gruber, Wackenbrauerie, but most have a long way to go. As Greg said, too soon. Hopefully it's an issue that will write itself over time as there is a small but growing movement of savvy German consumers behind making and enjoying good craft beer. Until then, I'll continue to homebrew. I can pick up 25 kilogram sacks direct from Best Malt for $28 each. Really? Hmm. <laughs> and continue my ball shop quest for fresh craft beer, albeit expensive. Uh, keep up the great work. Get Denny to learn some metal covers on the ukulele. Prost. I'm I'm all for Denny learning uh, some metal covers. I've still been trying to get him to do Ace of Spades. That ain't gonna happen. <laughs> Just you, Tin Pan Alley is a lot more likely than metal. Um, you know that was uh, an interesting uh, interesting analysis from Daryl uh, in terms of uh, you know getting old stale beers in foreign countries. I've seen that happen a lot. It really uh, was brought home to me when I was in Mexico recently and judging IPAs. Uh, all of them had like an old stale hop character to them. And when I mentioned it to somebody, uh, he said, yeah, well, that's because what they get here. So that's how they think an IPA is supposed to be. Well, and we see that same thing with how people think here in America, English beers are supposed to taste or how like a German beer is supposed to taste. Or Belgian beers. And I'm going to be talking about that later when we talk about my trip, too. Yep. So there you go. Uh, thank you, uh, Daryl, Daryl von Naheim uh, from Germany. 
for your feedback there on Stone Berlin. But I think all this talking about feedback has made me a thirsty man. That's right, man. Let's uh, head over to the pub and have some beers and talk about the beer life. We'll be right back after this. This episode is brought to you by Brewers Publications, publisher of none other than Simple Home Brewing by two guys named Denny Kahn and Drew Beecham. Maybe, just maybe, you've heard of them. If you want to streamline your brew day, make great beer, and have a blast in the process, head over to BrewersPublications.com and buy a copy of Simple Homebrewing. Welcome back. We're sitting here in the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in your town, wherever in the world you are, and we're having a couple beers, and uh, today they're both homebrews, huh? Yeah, why not? I mean, we are homebrewers. Nothing says that we always have to drink craft beer. Today I'm drinking one of my homebrews that I just put into kegs. It's the whole start of something that I'm going to talk about later, but it's my uh, Quake Experimental beer, a nice little five and a half percenter and it's really interesting the, with these new uh, yeast strains. So uh, a little bit of sour orange, a lot of uh, fruity notes, but also just kind of this roundness that then dies off into into great dryness and makes it you know, ready for you to have that next sip. So definitely interesting, and I'm going to be sending you a can of it, Denny. Oh, great. I'm looking forward to it. Now, which quake strain did you use? So the one that I ended up using, I figured I'd start with, it's kind of hard to say that's classic, but... It's a classic right now. The Omega Yeast Strain, uh, their uh, Vosquake. So it's one of the, the key ones. I think it's from the uh, the Sigmund line. And uh, it just it was really, really interesting. Just that very kind of uh, sour, bitter orange flavor that came in off of a beer that's all pills malt, basically, and some wheat, some sugar. <laughs> so Yeah, I don't know anything about it. I just thought that I would sound erudite by asking that question. Yeah, and it's really cool because I did ferment it hot. I fermented it at 90 degrees, and it ended up tasting really, really interesting. <laughs> now, now, I've heard a lot of people say that those yeasts can be very clean. They can, but you know, what's part of what the, the – we're going to talk about this later, but part of the, what's interesting about them is the range over which they work and the fact that, again, this was a 90-degree fermented beer, and it doesn't taste – sharp and funky and I mean like if you took USO5 or 1056 and fermented it at 90 degrees you'd get a beer that was undrinkable and you know this is actually quite drinkable and quite interesting yeah well that, that's interesting I, I like to hear more about it and I guess I will pretty soon huh? yes and you'll get to taste it soon now you are kind of going uh, well a little more traditional yeah I'm uh, I'm drinking the veterans blend IPA that I made for uh, the hop creep test that I did uh, if you remember me talking about that before I tried to get hop creep in uh, in a beer by dry hopping and I couldn't do it I've got to do more tests on it but it turned out that the beer that I made is just incredibly delicious those uh, veterans blend hops have a blend that is like right up my alley in terms of what I like. 
and putting in five ounces for dry hops in a five-gallon batch really, really makes that beer pop. And I'm just absolutely loving it. And it's not too strong. It's like a 6.6% IPA, so it's not like over the top or anything. Very simple grain bill, uh, uh, just uh, pale malt and a little bit of uh, Crystal 40. Uh, The pale malt comes from uh, Skagit Valley Malting, and it's uh, specially made for micro homebrew up in Kenmore, Washington. Really, really tasty malt and stands up nicely to all the hops in the beer. There you go. Sounds good to me. Always nice to have a nice little IPA, and I'm I'm, I'm about to I'm about to actually can up some of my 45 IPA and send it to you as well. Oh, cool, man! I want to try that one also. There you go. It's it's homebrew day here at the, at the podcast. <laughs> that's right. But that's enough homebrew. Although we're going to keep drinking it, it's time to get into the beer news and the big story that hit while we were on kind of quasi break. I guess I don't know. You were in Belgium. I was working. Um. <laughs> was the merger of Boston Beer and Dogfish Head. And I think that one dropped on everybody and went, what? And what's amazing to me is, okay, one, Boston Beer, a.k.a. Sam Adams, a.k.a. Angry Orchard, or truly uh, sparkling seltzer water, uh, they bought Dogfish Head for $300 million, which when you go and you look at like how much Constellation paid for Ballast Point, $1 billion, is really telling. Yeah, really. Um, but I think what's interesting about this is, so, okay, they're both of these guys are considered craft breweries by, or independent craft breweries by the Brewers Association uh, because they both fall into the guidelines of what it is to be a member, which also means that because they're merging together, they're both qualifying as independents. They still get to be considered independent according to the BA rules. Um, so that's that on the craft beer side. But what I thought was really interesting in reading about it was, okay, one, the conversations about this started in February and it closed up here in early May. That's super fast. Absolutely amazing for, for a merger of that size. The other part was to me, what's interesting about it is Sam Adams or Boston beer has kind of been at a crossroads of really an identity crisis. And they started as a brewery, but, in the past few years, most of their money, their most most of their funds have been coming from the sales of Angry Orchard Cider or their Twisted Tea products or their sparkling seltzer water, you know, the Truly products, uh, more so than they ever got uh, than they're getting from the Sam Adams line. And so they've kind of been at this weird crossroads and Dogfish Head's also been at this crossroads of where they can't quite get over that hump to broach full good national distribution, which is of course what Boston beer has. So this will be interesting to see if by bringing dogfish head into the fold, if that can't help revitalize some of the Sam Adams portfolio uh, to bring back that Sam Adams lager and whatnot. And if vice versa, if uh, Sam Adams can't help get dogfish head over that hump to get good distribution of quality beer across the nation. You know, I, it's going to be interesting to see where this goes. Uh, it certainly was a shock. Uh, unlike a lot of people, I don't really have a big feeling one way or the other about it. Uh, I'm sure that uh, they're all fine people, and I hope that this works out for them. Uh, it's not like uh, ABI buying something. Yep. So, you know, it, it's kind of like a sit back and see what happens kind of thing, huh? Yep. So just kind of interesting to see. And 
we'll see if that means if uh, if there's going to be you know what sort of changes in 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 there because in some ways Dogfish Head's very innovative, but also in some ways they felt like they've been left behind, and very much the same thing could be said about uh, Boston Beer. So interesting to see what will happen. Yeah, you know, I've always had the feeling that Dogfish is more about uh, gimmicks than beer, and I'm going to be. Uh, and that's not to say they don't make some good straight-ahead beers, too. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to be real curious to see if the gimmick beers become more or less prevalent. We'll see. All right, and then moving on from, the, well, really kind of talking about the gimmick beers, our good buddy Jeff Allworth over at Beervana, he wrote up on a column about saying that brewers aren't inspired by the widget model, right? So one of the common complaints about some of the mega breweries is that the executives who are there in charge of sales and accounting and all that sort of fun stuff, they don't really see beer as anything other than a widget. And, you know, they're not driven by, you know, like the the passion of it, or they're not driven by, you know, all the different styles. And so what Jeff was noting was looking around at some of these breweries, right? You've got at the market now, what you, what we're seeing is we're not seeing these craft brewers anymore kind of be widget makers, right? You know, they're not all making a pail or this, that, and the other, they're establishing identities based on you know passion or style, so that's the reason why I think what we're starting to see now is yeah okay great we've had the guys who they've made their bones and their reputation on IPAs of all sorts including hazies right so the, those are your trilliums and your other halves uh, or you got them the ones who are making their name based on strange beers or people who are making their names on uh, we are dedicated to making high quality Germanic style lagers right. And what his, what his column's arguing about is really that like brewers are modern brewers are no longer accepting that notion of I've got to be everything and I've got to sell all the widgets. They're really kind of starting to focus down. And does that make the play of the market better? And of course, also what was great was his podcast partner brought in the Nash equilibrium theory. <laughs> yeah, man, it's like what? Uh, I love nerdy people. <laughs> Yeah, well, and once again, uh, I, I think we're going to just have to see where this trend goes. But I, I basically agree with Jeff. I, I think that uh, the, he's got this one right. There we go. And this one, uh, Denny, I mean, you brought this one up uh, <laughs> the other day. And I love okay. this. The beer ball? The beer ball. You, you can tell uh, that you're a, a beer person of a certain age if the words beer ball bring you some sort of nostalgic trill. <laughs> For those of you who haven't seen it before, this is just kind of like a uh, plexiglass brown ball that uh, beer used to come in. And I'm not sure why it was there for anything other than marketing uh, and that you could make a great bong out of it if you wanted to. Well, what they said was in the, uh, this article, uh, it originally came from FX Matt in Syracuse. And it happened because they effectively got a cheap deal on these plastic balls and what they turned them into was kind of like something that was lighter than a keg, slightly smaller than a keg. And really at the beginning, like a really great deal. Like you could get an amazing amount of beer for like 20 bucks and it came with it. Yeah. You had a tap, you could treat it like a keg. If you needed to ice it down, it was basically open up the box and toss a bunch of ice into the box and people just really loved it. And, but the whole article was kind of interesting just for the, nostalgia factor of it because and talking about the story about how they were created and how they eventually went away but because i remember working as a kid in albertson's in florida 
and having to help move these things. And that was, so that would have been like the late 80s. Yeah, you know, I'm not sure I ever had beer out of one, but I certainly saw them in the store. I saw the ads for them. Uh, I, I saw the bongs made out of them. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, it's one of those things that's so stupid, it's cool. Yeah, well, and of course, the, it was great for the fact that uh, if you're at a party and you, the tap didn't work, you just bust off the top and dip your cup in. <laughs> just pour it down your throat, huh? Pretty much. And uh, I'd be curious to see if any of our listeners out there have a nostalgic thought on beer balls. Uh-huh. Yeah, really. If if you uh, are familiar with beer balls, and we mean the kind that beer comes in, uh, shoot us a note. Let us know. Yeah. Uh, and then our final article for today comes from, uh, well, it's from a website called Everywhereist, and really the writer is uh, Geraldine uh, DeRuder, and she just won a James Beard Award. Uh, for an article that was about her trying Mario Vitale's pizza dough cinnamon roll recipe and talking about how awful it was, but also wrapping it up in the whole notion of talking about the sexual harassment claims that had kind of been hitting Mario Vitale and, and took him out of his culinary empire. And so she she won a, a James Beard Award, which is kind of like the Grammy slash Oscars of the food world. Yeah, really. For this article that she published on her on her site everywhere else, and then she published this follow up article talking about getting to the process of submission, kind of ignoring the fact that she had, uh, had submitted, finding out that she wins, what her reaction was, and then talking about how she had pitched this article all around different places. She'd pitched a lot of different articles in a lot of places. She's had some stuff published, but she uses her website as sort of overflow for the things that nobody wants to buy. And so her, the whole thing that she wrote about, I thought was really great was about like, you know, look, remember, you know, remember that you have value when you're doing this, even if you don't see it. And the only difference between this column that I wrote before and after is now it has an award attached to it. And so therefore get your butts out there and get writing. Well, we do that. Don't we We try. So I think it's time for us to wrap up these beers and go uh, do some reading. Sounds good to me. Let's uh, finish them up and head over to the library. We're going to be right back. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Mechagrade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their 8th generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve MechaGrade. For more information, please visit MechaGrade.com. 
We're sitting here in the library, surrounded by all these musty old books, except for our brand new book. And uh, we have uh, some interesting things to talk about that we've been reading. Uh, first is that the GABF has released new beer style guidelines. Man, it seems like they do that about every year, doesn't it? Yep, they really do. And so, of course, it's always hotly contested as to what they're adding and what they're, what they're taking away. Because the whole idea is that they want to get a broad spectrum of things for people to put their beers into, which importantly pays for the competition and the convention and everything else, but also gives people a chance to you know get some recognition. And so the styles that they've had this year are Juicy or Hazy Strong Pale Ale, for you, Denny. <laughs> yeah. Contemporary Belgian-style Goose Lambic. Franconian-style root Beer. And American-style India Pale Lager. Now, I'm actually kind of surprised India Pale Lager hasn't been in there before. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, um, maybe it's because it's so hard to distinguish from an India Pale Ale. Uh, I mean, the ones I've had, I could tell. But uh, so it, it's there. I, I am also interested to see the, the juicier, hazy, strong pale. And of course, at the same time that they're doing um, the style additions, they're also consolidating things or removing things. And so what amazed me was like some of these I'd never even considered as being like, what? So they've consolidated pale and dark American uh, Belgio style ale styles into one guideline. They've combined Keller or Zickel beer uh, ale and lager styles into one guideline. One that I had never heard of before, which tells me I got to do more reading, is Braslau style pale ale and dark Shopes styles which is kind of, I guess, a, a big wheat beer, an old-style wheat beer. Uh, American-style light and dark wheat beer styles have been consolidated uh, from four to, into one guideline. I'm actually kind of surprised that took that long. And then wood and barrel-aged pale, amber, dark, strong, all into one guideline as well, which makes me wonder if we're going to see less wood-aged beers that aren't you know, basically big stouts. You know, the first thought I had is, what's the difference between a hazy, strong, pale ale and a hazy IPA. It's a damn fine question. Uh, but I know that they have, <laughs> because I mean, they have American strong ale, right? And they have, they do also have a strong pale ale category. So I think we'd have to, you'd have to dig into that to go see what, what it's like. But Denny, they did remove a style. Oh no. They took out American style ice lager. Oh, ice beers. We knew you back in the nineties. <laughs> yeah, really. Um, you know, and just just a little editorial comment here. Keep in mind that these styles are made so that commercial brewers are able to enter their beers. Uh, it's it's not quite like the homebrew world where the styles come out and you try to brew to one. This is more like you brew your beer and they'll come up with a category for it. Yeah, and and again, it's it's supposed to be reflective of what's happening in the commercial market, right? So, which is the reason why some of these I was like. Wait, what? That's a style? Uh, I've never seen that before. Uh, but it's kind of cool. The links are up on uh, the Brewers Association. They maintain these. And, like, literally, these are used for World Beer Cup and for the GABF. And, right. you know, they are much shorter, tighter styles than, you know, what you're used to seeing, like, from the BJCP. Because, well, they're not trying to capture an origin and everything else. They're just trying to capture the organolectic type of characteristics. So... 
Very cool. Uh, also, I find that these guidelines are useful for kind of trolling through to go, huh, I never thought about that before. So, yeah, like the Breslau one made me go, wait, what? Because uh, they now have some very interesting beer styles back in there. Yeah, well, they they have interesting names for them. Whether or not the styles are interesting, uh, we'd have to decide after we tried the beer. I consider any new flavor combination to be interesting. So Okay. Now, speaking of things that are interesting. We ran across a guy uh, named Jason Chalifor, who uh, calls himself the would-be brewmaster. And uh, Drew ran across him because he mentioned that he uh, has a copy of our book that he's looking forward to reading. But I think that this guy could be like my my brother from another mother kind of thing. Because his whole uh, article this time around is about how homebrewers have kind of gotten into thinking that they need to be like a commercial brewery, and that's not necessarily the case. And that is very much uh, what we're talking about in simple homebrewing, huh? Yeah, well, but I think very importantly, the I like the way that he termed it, which was that homebrewing doesn't have to be pro-brewing cosplay. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, and, you know, I think that pretty much every homebrewer goes through that stage early on. I can... I can remember sitting down designing a three-vessel herm system with pumps and stuff like that. And fortunately, I never got around to uh, actually going through the hell of building it. But, you know, I think that we, as we brew longer, we kind of get to uh, realize that we can come up with our own style of doing it. We learn what's important and what's not and what to focus on and what doesn't really matter. And that that seems to be what he's talking about, huh? Yep, exactly. I mean, it's the exact message of simple homebrewing, which is find the things that work for you and do that and don't overthink this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Malted barley wants to become beer. All you got to do is just not screw it up. And beyond that, it's all up to you what, what you want to do and what you don't want to do. Yeah, and now what I want to do is I want to go brew some stuff. <laughs> Good idea. Let's uh, take a quick break. We're going to head over to the brewery. We'll be back in just a minute. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the work to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super-fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your word in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art. They're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Yakima Chief Hops is a 100% grower-owned global hop supplier located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family hop farms to the world's finest brewers. Yakima Chief's cryo hops represent the most innovative technology in hop processing, using a patent-pending cryogenic separation process which preserves the components of each hop fraction. Cryo hops pellets provide intense hop flavor and aroma, reduced vegetal flavors, and increased yield. Available now to commercial and home brewers. Learn more at yakimachief.com.
we're here in the brewery, and we're going to talk about some new malt, some new yeast, and uh, what we're learning about them. So take it away, Mr. Drew. Yeah, so our good friends over at Country Malt Group, uh, they actually have sent us some a new malt that they're that they're getting ready to kind of push out onto the market and wanted to get our feedback on it, but I, I love it. The stuff's called uh, brew malt, and kind of think like a spin on honey malt, but with some different characters to it, right? And I love this. They say, uh, brew malt is the newest creation from our malt innovation center in Vancouver, Washington. I like the idea of a malt innovation center. <laughs> yeah, man, no kidding. Uh, that's our good friend, Terry Ferendorf. says here, a tart but slightly sweet. Brew malt delivers a lively complexity not found in other malts. Vibrant malt was designed to punch up all your latest creations. And they they say, okay, you can use this in IPA and Saison and Pale Ale and Cream Ale, Belgian Ale, and Lager. Uh, the flavor profile is tart with a slight honey and stone fruit sweetness. And it gives a copper uh, color, and you can use up to about 15% of it, of, or you can make about 15% of your grist this malt in total. So kind of some interesting new stuff to keep an eye out for. Uh, it should be coming out to everybody in short order, I assume. If you're going to be at HomebrewCon, they'll probably have samples of it there as well. We're going to get some of our Igors to brew with this as well so that we can see what uh, other people think to do with it. Yeah, you know, and it, it is really interesting because uh, while it's compared to honey malt, they're also talking about it adding a slight tartness to your beer. So kind of kind of like sweet and sour, huh? Yeah, uh, two, two great tastes that go great together. That's right. And we referenced it earlier in the pub because, of course, I'm being a knucklehead. Uh, but, yeah, I've got a new brewing project going on, and that new brewing project is with these uh, these new Quake strains. So, and yes, I know I'm probably saying that's still wrong, but I'm an American. I can only do so much. You know what, man? I think that from the feedback we got, uh, just about anything it would be right. Yep. The Quake Strains, if you hadn't been paying attention, these are the traditional Norwegian yeast strains found around farmhouses uh, and farmhouse ales. We're going to be talking with somebody shortly about uh, traditional Norwegian farmhouse ales. But these yeast strains have kind of become a big hit because you can ferment with them up to 90 degrees or up to 100 degrees, according to some people. They like high-gravity beers. They like those warm temperatures, and they can turn beer around super quick. So these things have kind of become a really interesting topic for homebrewers because, hey, you can almost get away without temperature control. You know, you can you can get away from some of the things that, that we're worried about and still produce really great, clean-tasting beer. And these yeast strains will also ferment all the way down into the 60s and whatnot. And so they're kind of being eyed as possible workhorses. But now, just like with Saison's, there's about 50-some-odd strains out there. So what I've decided to do is start brewing with them. And start taking notes and putting those notes up on maltosfalcons.com, same place where I put the Saison notes. And recognizing that I'm not going to make a traditional Norwegian farmhouse sale with them, I'm just using my Saison wort, that Saison experimental wort that I do, which is pills, wheat malt, and white sugar, and one hop addition of magnum. You know, it's a very plain, simple beer that ends up tasting really great and complex because of the yeast choices. And I'm going to actually do, because apparently doing the Saison strains wasn't complicated enough, I'm actually going to do two runs with the Quake strains, one warm and one cold, to see what sort of differences you get between the two. I was just going to ask you if you were intending to do that. I am, because again, I'm a knucklehead. <laughs> But the the very first one that I did, the one with the Vosquake from Omega, 
turned out really lovely. I'm, ha- I'm really enjoying it. It's a real easy, easy drinker with some very interesting characters to it that belie the fact that the beer itself is stupidly simple. So looking forward to doing that. I've got uh, the brand new Oslo strain just came in from uh, bootleg biology. They sent that to me and the quake around the world blend from maniacal up in Maine. I also now have my hands on. So this will be really interesting because some of the things with these different East companies doing this is some of them are taking single strain isolates out of the quake uh, samples that they get. So they can get a very clean performing thing. So you can see people talking about, oh, well, this is derived from the the yeast gotten from the Sigmund farm, right? Well, except for that Sigmund culture has X number of different critters in there. And so if they're doing single cultural isolates, there's a lot of different possibilities out of that one culture. So I'm looking forward to this. It's going to be interesting. Yeah, it is. You know, and uh, if you if you think back in our last book, Homebrew All-Stars, there was an interview with Lars Garshall, who was the guy who kind of made people starting to be aware of these yeasts. And he talks a lot about it there. So yep. if you have a copy of the book, check out Lars in there. And if you don't have a copy of the book, there's a good reason for you to get one. Yeah, Amazon.com. And I think we still have <laughs> copies, don't we? We certainly do. I have a whole closet full of them. Sweet. So yeah, <laughs> go to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Go buy a copy, please. Yeah, right. And then, uh, Denny, I know you just kind of had had to do some digging for our latest BYO column that's going to come out sometime later this year about dry yeast and particularly, you know, sort of the sterols and everything else. Yeah, um, we have a, a column on Brew Your Own coming out. Uh, I guess it's the July-August issue where we talk about yeast. And uh, I had made the statement that uh, dry yeast uh, doesn't really need a starter because uh, of the way it's produced. And uh, the guys at, uh, at Brew Your Own, for some reason, didn't want to just take my word for it. They wanted some uh, some backup on it. So I uh, did some research, contacted a number of people, uh, including uh, John Palmer. I talked to uh, Brian Perkey, who's the, uh, I believe his like, title is North American Sales Manager for Lalaman, something like that. He sent me a bunch of information. And it's all about how this dry yeast is produced and why you don't really need to worry about rehydrating it or aerating it or doing any of that stuff because of the nutrients that are built into it from the process. And I don't have the notes right here in front of me, so I'm not going to be going into it in detail. But I know that there's a lot of discussion online these days about whether or not you need to aerate or rehydrate with dry yeast. And let me just assure you that the uh, yeast companies are saying, no, neither one of those is necessary these days. So uh, if you're doing that, then make your life and your brewing simpler and just stop doing that stuff. There you go. Make life simple. The world's complicated enough. <laughs> no kidding, man. Okay, well, I guess it's time to uh, head over onto the lounge and uh, to, to Rick Steves it, huh? Yep. To the lounge. All righty. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I'll be talking about my trip to Belgium and the Netherlands and uh, giving you the long list of beers that I drank. So please stick around. (laughs) 
Are you having trouble finding enough time to homebrew and give attention to the other important things in your life? Is your newest brewed IPA experiment coming at the expense of other obligations? Don't neglect partner or pet. Brew with the Genesis Fermenter. Learn why at genesisfermenter.com and find them wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. So come on in. Come on in. Just come on in. Pour yourself a beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 Well, welcome back. Thank you for sticking around. It's time for us to lounge. We have the comfy chairs. We have the smoking jackets. There's peaceful music wafting through the air. And today, we're going to, like we threatened earlier, we're going to make like Rick Steves and take you to Europe. Because our buddy here, Denny, finally made it to Europe. Yeah, man, I, I did. It was uh, it was amazing, and uh, I guess just real quick before I get into the whole thing, I will tell you that the idea behind the trip was that uh, we were going to visit my wife's old 1976 Volkswagen bus. We'd sold it a few years ago and then heard from a guy in the Netherlands who had bought it and fixed it all up and was driving it all over the Netherlands. So we just had to go visit, and uh, if, we're, if you're in the Netherlands, you got to go to Belgium, right? So that was that was the incentive behind the whole trip. Yeah, I like the fact that you took this very little nugget of something and used it as an excuse to build a, a whole beer trip around. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, and and beer wasn't the main purpose of the trip, but uh, it certainly was in there. Uh, my wife, as you've heard before, likes beer, and uh, we went with another couple from here in Eugene who are beer drinkers also. Uh, to me, one of the coolest parts of the whole thing was that Paula, who didn't really care for Belgian beers much before we went, has really uh, gained an appreciation for them. So I thought that uh, that was extremely cool and open-minded. I was going to, I was going to wonder. I mean, last time I went to Belgium, when I came back, I was dying for some hops, and of course things have changed since then. But yeah, I was wondering how your wife was going to handle it. Yeah, well, you know what? We found a lot of IPAs in Belgium these days, and we're going to be going through that uh, here. So to get started, we uh, we got into Brussels on a Friday. We were spaced out, but we had a beer and chocolate tour booked for that afternoon. Uh, it's like a four, five-hour walking tour starting in the Central Market Square in Brussels in front of a chocolate shop. And we're going to put up a link to this particular tour that we took on the website because I tell you guys, if you were in Brussels, you have to do this tour with this guy, Adrian. He just knows so much about the chocolate, the beer, and especially the history and architecture there of Brussels. It was a fascinating afternoon, evening, and we got to eat some really good chocolate and drink some really good beer on top of it. Well, so, well, so yes? what, what kind of beers did you have? Well, after we hit five or six different chocolate shops, he took us to a bar whose name I forgot to write down for a couple of the modern beers uh, that are coming out of Belgium these days. 
The first one was the Delta IPA from the Brussels Beer Project, a 6.5% 45 IBU uh, IPA, that uh, golden, clear herbal with some fruit notes. They used a Saison yeast for it, actually. And the hops were Challenger, Citra, and something called Smargard that I have never even heard of before. Have you? I think I've heard of it before. I've definitely never used it before. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea. But uh, judging by the herbal quality coming from the beer, uh, maybe that's where it came from. The other one we tried there was the Jamba de Bois, and I apologize because I'm going to just be butchering names left and right throughout this whole thing. It came from uh, Brasserie de la Seine, and uh, according to Adrian, this is one of his favorite breweries uh, that's around there. It's a new brewery, so we kind of like kept our eyes open for some of their other beers while we were there. Uh, it had a... a Big, fluffy white head, an 8% beer, cloudy straw color, kind of floral hops, a little bit of malt sweetness. Uh, hop flavor came in mid-palate, and there was a dry, lingering finish. Style-wise, I really don't know what to call it. Uh, well, uh, the, with the with the De La Sun beers, I just always call them good. Yeah, right. And we had several others from them, and they were all really, really well-made. Uh, then we went to the Royal Theater Tune, uh, which is an interesting place. It's been around since, I believe, around 1700 or so. That was one of the things that blew me away about Brussels. It's like, everything is old. <laughs> and I guess that that's pretty much true of everywhere we went in Belgium. Uh, you know, my first time in Europe, I knew that uh, there's a lot of history there actually experiencing something that has been there for like 500 or 800 years just totally blew me away. Now, the idea behind this place is that it was built as a bar and a puppet theater because when it was built, you couldn't really criticize the king of Belgium without ending up in some big trouble. But you could put on a puppet show and let the puppets criticize him. So that's that was the idea behind this place. Uh we had a couple beers here. We had a, a Good and Careless Triple, which is available here in the States, a, a 9% triple, long-lasting whitehead, clear golden, malty, floral, and it was fresh. And that was the thing that I kept noticing, obviously, that the beers were fresh. They were so different than the American versions you get where the flavors are maybe kind of muted, even the best-kept ones we get here in America were just not the same. And it, it became kind of a, a quest of mine on this tour, besides discovering new beers, was trying the beers that I get here in America, right there where they're made, to experience the differences. And let me tell you, I, I'm. it's going to be interesting the next time I go and buy a Belgian beer from my local good beer store, because they get good beers and they keep them in good shape, but they're just not the same. The other one that we had there that was one of my favorites uh, was the, the Ode Creek VA from Ode Beersel. Uh, this was, you know, a, a, a creek beer, a cherry beer, small pink-purple head, kind of a red wine color, wonderful cherry aroma and sourness. Uh, the flavor was malt, cherries, and sourness. And, I, you know, my notes say unfreaking believable. Uh, this was a really, really good beer. Well, but I was going to say that that wasn't even your best creek that you had while you were in Belgium. 
No, no, no. We had another one at the Zythos Festival, uh, you know, and, and we'll get there in a minute. Uh, yeah, and then we went over to another uh, brewery called Oban Vuitton. I have no idea how to pronounce that correctly. Uh, it, this is like the oldest bar in Brussels. Uh, I think it's like from around 1550 or something like that. Uh, the walls are this deep brown color stained from all the tobacco smoke that's been in there over the years. And to prove that, Adrian pulled back a picture and showed us the wall behind it, which was just, you know, a, a light colors wood finish. And I have to admit that by this point, my note-taking was not what it should be. <laughs> uh, I can't remember the first beer we had there, but we finished up with a full chalice of Rochefort 8 that had come off the tap, uh, I believe. And it was amazing. I'm a big fan of Rochefort 8, and having it right there, whether it was my imagination or not, it it tasted different than any Rochefort 8 I'd ever had. Well, the problem that you always have to be careful about is how much does location make a difference? I mean, yes. Yeah, right. I mean, there's there's definitely there's definitely the experience of, hey, is this fresher or not? But then there's also just the fact, like, dude, I'm in freaking Belgium. <laughs> yeah, right. In a bar that's been here for, uh, you know, 500 years, and I'm sitting here with a bunch of great people having a wonderful time after drinking a bunch of good beer and eating a bunch of good chocolate. Well, I think it's so, fair yeah. to say that bar has been there since the good old times. <laughs> yeah, well, look at that. You can actually translate. <laughs> so uh, two other two other travel tips for Brussels besides this tour, which I say you have to do this tour if you're in Brussels. Uh there's a, a restaurant right down there, not too far from that bar, called Chez Leon. They have a moule frite deal, mussels, fries, their house lager, and it's like 19 euros, something like that. It is amazingly good food, and it's a great price. The other thing you ought to do if you're in Brussels, especially if you're at all into music, is go to the Musical Instrument Museum there. Uh, really fascinating, very, very cool place. So then on Saturday, we took the train to Leuven uh, for the uh, Zythos Beer Festival and had a rather interesting experience there. Well, okay, so first let's set the ground stage. What is Zythos? Zythos is the largest beer festival in Belgium. Uh, this year, I believe that they had 587 beers, something like that. Uh, I'm sad to say I only made it through about 15 or 16. But uh, should have tried harder, buddy. I tried really hard. And I want to give a shout out to our listener, uh, Darren Oman, who uh, gave me a lot of great advice about what to do in Belgium, where to go, what to see. And uh, we met up at the festival. He was with Joe Stang, one of the authors of the uh, Good Beer books. And I had my Good Beer Guide to Belgium with me. I didn't think to have Joe autograph it because I'd been drinking. But anyway, Darren, if you're listening to this, thank you so much, man. Your tips were invaluable. Uh, if anybody else out there is going to Belgium, let me know, and I will pass on some of the info that Darren gave me. So I, I stepped off the train in Leuven, and these three guys come up to me. I mean, I'd seen them on the train, kind of like one of them was kind of like looking at me. And we get off the train, and I'm standing on the platform waiting to get a taxi to take us to our B&B. The guy comes up and says, are you Denny Khan? <laughs> Which just kind of blew my mind. 
His name is uh, Carol Arisa. And uh, well, Drew, do you want to read the letter? Yeah. So again, an email here. Uh, Greetings from England. My name is Carol Arisa. I'm the guy that recognized you on the train to Leuven, and I have attached the photo we took on the square. I hope you enjoyed the beer festival. I certainly did, particularly going through all of those goozes and lambics and oud bruns, flanders, reds, and anything sour and funky. It was great and a bit spooky seeing you on that train just minutes before I'd been telling my two friends, non-homebrewers, about the podcast and how and why you would frown upon us drinking Lefe, the only cold beer we could <laughs> find before boarding the train. In any case, the whole... Uh, and if you don't know, Life is owned by uh, ABI. Right. In any case, the whole encounter is one of the highlights of my trip, second only to the beer uh, and the festival and the beautiful girls. And, well, there are other things I'm in no capacity to remember. I, w- <laughs> I wish I'd had more time to talk to you, ask a few questions, maybe make a suggestion or two for the podcast, which, by the way, you can totally do an email. Uh, if you remember, I mentioned my first ever batch was an all-grain Berliner Weiss, from which, let's say, I learned a lot. Since then, I've won some medals, included some good sours, and have experimented quite a bit with cider. Adding bread is the latest one, and it's going really, really well. Please send my regards to Drew. Hello. I also spared a thought or two for him with all the saisons I tried. Yeah, I know. Uh, see you later. Well, I'll listen to you later on my way home. Still living in the past. Just done the 2018 Homebrew Con episode, but catching up quickly. Carol, it was uh, it was a mind-blowing experience to meet you, and I'm really glad you came up and said hi. And... Uh, I guess while we're on it, I, I've got to say that uh, that was one of, of three times that somebody recognized me uh, over there uh, a, a week later. Uh, I got a, a message from a guy in the Milwaukee Beer Barons, uh, Sid Coplin, who said, hey, I'm over here too, want to get together for a beer. Uh, timing didn't work out. Next day, I'm getting off a tram uh, to go to the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam. And as I step off, the guy says, Denny Kahn. And it turns out to be Sig waiting there on that platform. That's uh, one of those coincidences that you just could not plan, that we would be both in the same place at the same time. And then later on my way out, I was in the Amsterdam airport, and uh, somebody recognized me there who had been to some conferences at HomebrewCon that I'd, I'd done. So, uh, Well, it does help that you have a distinctive look. So, yeah. I do. So anyway, so back to the festival here, right? Well, and I think uh, it's important to tell people, I mean, like, I know they're probably viewing like, hey, you know, my little local beer festival or you know, my local big beer festival. But Zythos is a Zythos is like a really well-structured, real focus on the beer type beer festival. Yeah, very much so. Uh Yeah, we got to we got to Zythos early in the day, so it wasn't too crowded. Uh I had started my... uh my real Belgian beer experience the day before I uh, had a triple Carmelite uh, for lunch uh, at a really nice Italian restaurant. And then we found a bottle shop in Leuven and picked up uh, some Hommel beer, some Westie eight and some Le Chouf and drank those later. Uh, went to a place for dinner that was a Brazilian restaurant, Drew. I thought of you uh, <laughs> in, yeah, in, believe it or not in Leuven, we had the, uh, Bacalao croaks for dinner, and I had uh, I had my first Orville of the trip. I had ended up having about three of them. This one was a year old, and it was starting to get the funkiness that I'm familiar with here. So we went to the Zythos Festival. We had more beer tokens than are good for people. I think we started with like uh, 20 apiece and then had like another bag of 50 if we ran out. We started off, believe it or not, with an IPA. Uh, it was from a brewery called a Pervier, I believe. Uh, 
it was a really, really good IPA. And fortunately, if you remember from my wife being on the show before, she is like a big, big IPA fan. So we started to look for IPAs, and uh, there are a surprising number of American-style IPAs around now. The uh, Apervier, uh, 7%, uh, Citrus Tropical Fruits Resinous with a Hint of Maltiness. Yep, that pretty much describes it. Moved on to two from a brewery called Dumb's Brew, D-U-M. One was called Gimme Juice, and the other one was called So Hoppy. The Gimme Juice was billed as a juicy IPA, and it certainly was. It was one of several juicy IPAs I had there. But there wasn't a trace of haze to it, so you know. Well, and I was gonna say that was something that I mean, you even reached out to me from Belgium while you were at Zythos to comment on the fact that you had a number of these IPAs, which is an interesting trend to see there in Belgium, but also a number of these juicy IPAs that weren't hazy IPAs. Yeah, and that's very, very true. It, it kind of like proves that it doesn't have to be hazy to be juicy. Uh, these were all very good. They were all very much what I would call juicy, uh, except that they didn't have the the mouthfeel of like orange juice or something like a lot of the U.S. Uh, New England IPAs have. Uh, but the the flavor, the aroma was very much of that. So then we moved on to uh, Browery de Donder. They had a rye IPA, believe it or not. And, and of course you a, had to have it. Of course I had to have it, and it was really good. And they used most of the same hops that I use in mine. It's really, it was very cool. It was very close to drinking my own rye IPA, and it was absolutely delicious, uh, very well made. We uh, tried the Glorion Quad. Uh, this was one of the few beers that I dumped and I didn't dump it because it was a bad beer, because it, but because it wasn't an outstanding beer, and I had so many to try, if it wasn't really, really great, I wasn't going to finish it. There was a uh, Brasserie du Bourbon Origami 5 Brett IPA that was fantastically made. Um, the hops and the Brett really worked out well. They also had one that I immediately thought of you, and unfortunately it was out, and I didn't get to try it, but it was an avocado brett IPA. And yes, they actually put avocados in the fermenter. I can only imagine how much avocados cost in Europe. Yeah, I, I know, man. And I was really sad that that beer was gone because I really wanted to try it. I uh, took the opportunity to try a bunch of my favorites there just to compare them again. Uh, a Rochefort 8, a West Mall Triple... Uh, I had an Orval there that was like about, oh, maybe like three months old, something like that, and just had just a hint of the funkiness to it. So all of those, again, I, I just marveled. And I was talking to the brewery representatives about how much different those beers come across in Belgium than in the U.S. Um, they, they had never been to the U.S., so they were kind of surprised about that. Went from uh, Lambique Fabrique, we tried uh, the Oud Goose Brett L. That was really, really good beer. One of the standouts that everybody in our group flipped over was uh, Duval aged in bourbon barrels. Just just imagine that. Now, stop and think about that for a second. And it's it's every bit of what your imagination is telling you. It was 
a fantastic, fantastic beer. The Ministry of Belgian Beer had a craft pilsner that was really, really nice. Uh, nice firm bitterness, uh, then kind of like a, a soft malt character in the middle, but a real dry finish. Then a couple of the standouts here, uh, and the only beer that I went back for a second sample of was the Creek Bone Charbixa, and I know I've butchered that, but it's it's from the, the Bone Brewery, B-O-O-N, and it uses Charbixa cherries. This beer was heavenly and you you know me man i'm not like much of a fruit beer guy right right well and you should explain what these cherries are we've talked about them before um you know they they're like a real real special uh ancient breed of cherries that uh, the bone is trying to revive turns out that ken schramm in michigan is growing them too yeah they're yeah they're uh, an Old varietal. They are the varietal that really started Creek as Creek, and then because of the fact that the orchards went away, and that and we had the story just recently about the orchards being replanted, or at least a small orchard being replanted, um, those cherries weren't as available. So the cherries that we've been using in Creeks have been other sour cherries, and when you have one of the ones with the actual shortbeak cherries in it, it really makes a difference. Oh man, I tell you. This beer was rich and full, and you know the, the the touch of sourness to it. There was some uh, wood in there, really, really nicely balanced, and I think that that is one of the things that I learned in Belgium, is that they know how to do things in context. Uh, a lot of these beers, I kept thinking, if an American brewer was doing this, this beer would just be like screaming one flavor at you. And I didn't find that true of any of the Belgian beers that I tried. Uh, for instance, right next to the uh, the Bone booth was uh, Brasserie de Blaugies, Blaugies, however the heck you Blaugies. pronounce it, Blaugies. And they had a beer d'arbiste that had fig juice in it. And, man, it was freaking amazing. And I kept thinking, if an American brewery did this, all you would taste is the fig. Whereas this one has layers of complexity to it, uh, it was it was a stunning beer. And again, another fruit beer, which is not my style, that I was just blown away by because it was so well done. So, and a few others that I forgot to write down because I was having such a good time. But I highly recommend the Zythos Festival to you. Uh, go early in the day on like a like a Sunday and uh, no no crowds minimal crowds you'll be able to get in try all these beers uh, it is really really an experience if you have a chance to do it okay so we go from we go from Zythos and that big old time in Leuven right where do we go after Leuven after Leuven uh, we were uh, going to Ghent to rent a car and drive to Bruges. So stopped at a little street side cafe in Ghent, had a, another Hommel beer for lunch, uh, had one of the ubiquitous ham and cheese sandwiches that seemed to be everywhere in Belgium, drove to our gorgeous uh, little B&B that was five minutes from the center of Bruges, uh, easily within walking distance, and started walking around, taking a look at things. And one of the first things that we hit was the Cambrinus Cafe, uh, an ancient well-known spot. Uh, they also have another place just called Cambrinus. Uh, that is more food-oriented. The cafe is more about the beers. 
we got a taster that consisted of the blonde house beer, and this is where I got some that I hadn't heard of before, a Vivum Experimentum Triple, which was not bad but didn't blow me away, uh, Rodenbach Alexander, which always blows me away, Schuf Ublan, which, if you don't know, is the um, IPA from Le Chouf, and my wife just absolutely fell in love, and that became her number one beer for most of the rest of the trip. Well, and, and to uh, me, that's like best done examples of a Belgian IPA. I agree. You know what? And it reminded me very much of the Belgian IPA that I made years ago, partially because I used the Yeast 3522 Ardennes in it, which goes so well with American hops. So, uh, you know, that kind of became the one that Paula looked for wherever we went. Uh, I also had a Quermont Blonde and a Waterloo Triple Hop, uh, which was like a triple with hops in it. And, uh, you know, it was it was a, a really good beer. It was a really interesting uh, taster flight. Uh, went to a nice seafood restaurant for dinner, had moule frites again. One of my goals in Belgium was to eat as many mussels and fries as I could shove into my face. Uh, had a West Mall triple for that. Next day was the big trip that I have been looking for. Uh, we went down to uh, West Vlaterin. Uh, Indivreed is the name of the cafe there across from the St. Sixtus Abbey. You can't actually go into the abbey, so uh, you get to sit there and in the cafe and uh, eat and drink. Nice place. I didn't know what to expect. It's very modern, fairly large, but still comfortable, not so large that you felt lost in it, you know? Have you been there? Did you go there oh, yeah. when you were there? Yeah, okay. yeah, I've yeah. been uh, I've been there twice now. It's a yeah. it's a wonderful little location, and I mean, even with its hustling and bustling, it still feels very very peaceful because there's not a lot around the cafe itself and the monastery. No, there, we went for a walk in the woods around there. That was very nice. But once again, we got there earlier in the day, which was great because by mid late afternoon, the place was really jumping. I saw this lady who. Uh, probably is 20 years older than me walking out with like four boxes of, uh, of West letter and eight under her arms, you know, as, as much as she could carry. So, uh, you know, I went through the whole progression of six and eight, a 12 back to an eight. I really think that the eight is my favorite. Uh, the, the six is very nice cause it's got some, some bitterness to it and some hops. It's a blonde beer. Don't see it much, uh, around the 12 to me, because it's basically an eight that's kind of bigged up with sugar. It comes across a bit on the thin side, both body and flavor. So for me, the eight is the sweet spot. And uh, we bought a lot of it there. And I hate to say it, but pretty much for the rest of the trip, um, West Letter and Eight became our everyday drinking beer. Yeah, Tough I know. Life. And I'm not. Tough life. I, I am not saying that out there to brag or to make any of you jealous or anything like that. It is just the fact. I mean, it's like I said to Paul at one point. Great thing about Belgium is everybody serves Belgian beer. This is true. Uh, I mean, uh, there they don't call it Belgian beer; they just call it beer. Yeah, right, right. So uh, then uh, we uh, went back to our B and B after that. Uh, ordered in some Thai food for the evening. And we drank a Brasserie de la Seine, uh, Bruxelles. Uh, it's made with the uh, local strain of Brett from around Brussels. And it's a very good, very interesting beer. Definitely had some funk to that one. Uh, next day, walked around Bruges and ended up at Cambrinus. We had tried to get in there for dinner the night before, but it was so busy we couldn't. So we'd made uh, a reservation and went back. And I had 
many, many beers that night. I mean, this place has like a, an inch thick beer list. Or maybe it's two inches thick. Uh, plus looking at the taps on the bar, there was a, a Moinette triple, Shufu Blonde, a Delirium Tremens, a Chimay Blue, uh, an Orval that was under three months old and was probably the most delicious one I had on the whole trip and tasted like I never knew an Orval could taste. Um, just, you know, stunning. And like I said, I know there were more beers, but I don't remember what they were. Uh, another travel tip. If you're around, there's a uh, place, if you're just dying for a burger, there's a place called Gilles Burgers, uh, G-I-L-L-E-S, make incredible, really creative burgers, very, very good, with an amazing beer list. Uh, had a Vedette IPA, which is kind of like a session IPA. It was about 5.5%. Paula had a Taurus Bulba Blonde that came from Brasserie Delicin. And they also had Shufo Blonde, so we did a lot of that. As we were walking just down the street in Bruges, we saw down a little alley the Bourgogne de Flanders Brewery. So we ducked in there. They had a taster flight available, so of course we had to get one of those. Uh, started with a sati, which I thought mm-hmm. was very, very interesting. Eight and a half percent barley, wheat, and rye, uh, loudered through uh, spruce branches and juniper berries, and it's unboiled. So, and it was a, it was a very, very tasty beer. We had their flagship uh, Bourguignon de Flanders, uh, and interestingly enough, it's a combination of their beer, a Brunnen Os. And with a Timmermans Lambic, and that was one of two Timmermans beers they had. And I started wondering if there's some sort of connection between the two breweries. Uh, you know, I don't know, but it was a really good beer. Had the uh, the Brunnen Os, uh, 7.8%, a, a brown beer uh, made in open fermentation. There is a bit of banana to it and some caramel and dark, dark chocolate notes. Uh there was a Saison there, a 3.5% Saison that was a test brew that they were just working on that would have just made you weak in the knees, man. It sounds uh, good to me. I like uh, I like small Saisons like that. Well, and, and w- one of the things that was unique about it was it was all local ingredients, Belgian-grown barley and wheat and hops from Popering. Yep. Uh, and by the way, I just did a, a, a quick search. Bourgeon de Flanders is actually brewed by Timmermans. That brand oh, is, is owned by really? That's why the, okay. that's why you see it. Okay, great. Yeah. Well and they had you know, they had their own brewery there too, but I mean, you know, obviously it's owned by Timmerman, so uh let me see. But the Saison, uh the Saison was really, really remarkable. And I I thought of you when I drank it because it was maybe one of the best Saisons I've ever had. Uh they had an American style IPA on the flight, six and a half percent, fifty-five IBUs, bitterness. This was the most American IPA that we had any place. It was just stunning. And then the other thing that I thought was really interesting was a strawberry lambic that they had. They had such a strong strawberry aroma. You could smell it from a couple feet away. And it was just absolutely delicious. It was not overly sweet because the the oak and the the bacteria uh, made it Really, really nicely balanced. So, the last little place that we discovered was called Le Singe, and I know I butchered that name, 
uh, just this little pub down the street from where we were staying that we just kind of stumbled across, <laughs> kind of literally. It has been there since 1515. I mean, just think about that. You know, this, this pub has been there since 1515. Uh, I had their house amber and a West Mall triple there. The next day, we were off to the Netherlands to uh, to see the bus, and I discovered a new brewery I had never even heard of called Brond, B-R-A-N-D. I had both a Pilsner and an IPA that they made. They were both stunning, and I couldn't figure out why I've never heard of this brewery, because it's been around since 1340. That may be you know, the most historic of anything that we had in the trip. We uh, took off uh, from that little town, and we went up to our bed and breakfast. We were staying in just outside of Amsterdam in a little town called Zondijk. Looking around for dinner, we found this great place. Again, another great recommendation called the Steenoven Hut. This, uh, there's an Italian guy who makes some of the best pizza I have ever had in my life. And, you know, we asked him about beer, and he was saying, oh, I have, like, you know, Peroni or something like that, you know, some some really bad Italian lager. And I have Le because it's my favorite beer in the world. It's like, all right, we know what we're doing, so... Uh, had great pizza and a couple uh, rounds of Lachouf. Should you find yourself in the little town of Zandique in uh, just outside of Amsterdam, go get a pizza from Emanuele and say hi for me. And then we uh, finished up the trip. Uh, there was a uh, brew pub and brewery in town right across the street from our bread and breakfast called Browery Hope, H-O-O-P, and they have just won tons and tons of awards from all over Europe. And this is another one where I tried to take notes, but I lost track after like about five beers. I started with their East Coast IPA, uh, 6.4% light on malt body and flavor. Uh, hop aroma was herbal. There was some malt flavor evident as it warmed. No haze whatsoever. I don't know where they got East Coast IPA, but they did. So they they have two lines of beer there. They have the Hope beers, which are kind of like the the more American beers, and then they have what they call the Brigham line, which is more the Trappist styles. So I tried their Sainsa Triple, uh, 8.2% gold, slight haze, nice phenols, a little bit on the sweet side, uh, extremely well-made, no flaws. Uh, got a chocolate dessert, so we had to order their Heat and Stout. Uh Huge, long-lasting head, chocolate flavor with some coffee notes. Uh, no what you'd call Belgian character discernible in it, but there were enough roast and hops in it to offset the sweetness, and it went amazingly with chocolate. And finished up with their dry hop pills, which was very, very good. Uh, just enough bitterness, beautiful hop aroma, and some nice pills malt character. So... That's my trip in beers. That's a lot of beer. Uh, that's, that's, that's a lot of beer, especially when you consider that I didn't get notes on some of them because I was drinking so many of them, I just forgot. Well, it certainly uh, violates your four ounces of beer per day rule. Uh, yeah, well, it does. And that's why now that I'm back, I'm down to uh, beer only on weekends again. There we go. Now, but let's ask, now that you've seen this, one Okay, you got that juicy trend that you noticed, and IPAs everywhere. Right. Were there any other trends that you kind of noticed in the Belgian beer world that you saw? One thing that I found was interesting was from the time I started brewing 20 years ago, 
people always said, oh, Bruges, whip beer, you know, that's, that's the home of whip beer. That's what you're going to see there. And not being a big whip beer fan, I was kind of wondering if that's what I was going to be drinking a lot of, whether I liked it or not. And I hardly remember seeing any whip beers. I mean, I won't say there were none, but there were very few in Bruges or any place else. Uh, so I was kind of surprised by that. Uh, I, I did see, like I said, a lot of trends towards American IPAs. And I hope people aren't out there aren't going, uh, oh, my God, what's happened to Belgium? They're brewing American IPAs. <laughs> they're, they're doing their own take on it, and they're really good. And that doesn't mean that they're not brewing other things, too. Well, so, it's also very important for people to realize if you haven't been to Belgium – I mean, we have, because of our obsession with beer, we have this sort of viewpoint on like, you know, what, you know, Belgian beer culture must be. But if you go there, the best selling beer in Belgium is Jubilee, which is owned by Anheuser-Busch and it's a crappy Euro pills. And right. it's not even close to being, you know, I mean, these beers that, that we know and we love are very much in the same line as craft beer here in the U.S. It's just that beer is more available everywhere. Yeah, and you saw the Jupile pretty much everywhere, but that was not like the only beer, right? It wasn't like uh, when you would walk into a bar and they'd have Bud Light and Coors Light here, and that was those were your choices. Uh, any place that they had kind of the industrial light lagers, they also had a really, really good selection of other beers. I, you know, I want to say Belgian beers, but of course, everything there is a Belgian beer. Absolutely. So now the big question is, okay, you've... You've been to the source. Is this going to bring any inspiration to your brewing that you're doing at home? Well, I'm I'm definitely going to uh, get back to brewing my Belgian-style IPA. It's been years since I did that, and it was a beer that I really, really enjoyed. And now that I know that, uh, that Paula likes those, too, I think that that would be a, a good one to, to go across the lines uh, I'm also dying to brew another batch of my Rochefort 8 clone. I probably will not try and do anything like West Vletteren because as good as that beer is, uh, I think that I actually prefer the Rochefort. So, well, and that's the reason why you got to go taste them all. That, that's right. You know, and it, it, it was like kind of like the realization of a dream to be sitting there in end of read drinking West Vletter and eating the smoked ham sandwich with cheese that the monks made. Mm -hmm. uh, by, by the way, we stocked up on that cheese also when we were in the gift shop there. We didn't just buy beer. It's good stuff. Oh, it's really good um, stuff. So where next? I, man, I'm staying home for a while. I, I, I'm going to Providence next month. <laughs> and, uh, that's, the only, that's the only real uh, trip that I have planned for a while, so we'll have to see. But like I had mentioned a couple times, if any of you guys out there are planning on going to Belgium, get in touch. I will be happy to give you some recommendations from what I did. Be happy to pass along Darren's notes and stuff. And I just cannot stress enough, if you're in Brussels, do that beer and chocolate tour. And then write and thank me. Yeah, well, all I can say is I love the Belgians. They're some of my favorite people. Yeah, really, really nice people everywhere, uh, you know, and it, it was it was a great trip. And mentally, I'm still walking around those cobblestone streets of Bruges, being amazed, looking up at some of the old buildings there and thinking about everything that's happened. So uh, I'd love to go back someday. We'll see if I can. Yep, indeed. All right. I think it's time for us to get some, uh, well, some business taken care of. And get people on oh, their way. That's right. 
We're going to take a quick break here, and when we come back, we'll be wrapping things up, so stick around. Wild Rustic Spring Private Collection from Y-East offers a selection of yeast and bacteria cultures characteristic of Belgian and sour styles to pair with the new season. 3725 Beer de Garde, 3031 Saison Brett Blend, and 5223 Lactobacillus Brevis are available April through June at your local homebrew shop, exclusively from our private culture collection. These are the strains that exemplify the beers of Europe in Cezanne, Lambic Styles, Goes, Brett Beers, and more. And now you can use them to create world-class beers worldwide. No matter the direction you take these wild, rustic cultures, they'll become your new tradition. Find out more about which styles pair best with this release at yeastlab.com. Thank you for sticking around. I hope I didn't put you to sleep in that last segment. We're going to start off this last segment by answering some questions. All right. And our first question comes from Dave Sloan, who uh, actually sent us a message via experimentalbrew.com. And he said, hey, I just read the article in Zymergy uh, regarding water adjustments. It was a little snippet out of Zymergy out of our new book, Simple Homebrewing. At the end, y'all mentioned that you can adjust the profile in the keg or glass for qualities such as bitterness. I have a batch right now that is bitter as hell, and I'm trying to make adjustments to the recipe to see if I can get better. What would I use to try and reduce the bitterness in this batch, keg or by the glass? Thanks, Dave. Well, Dave, what I do when I'm in that situation is I start adding calcium chloride to it. Uh, you know, the the easy explanation is it kind of like emphasizes the malt character in the beer. Uh, and so you can just add just a little pinch and i'm you know i can't tell you the exact amount because it's a pinch to your glass and see what it does uh if you don't think it does anything try adding a little more uh try adding a little bit more after that once you have too much you'll recognize the mineral quality and you'll know that you've gone too far but it it might help and if you do that if you can like somehow measure how much that pinch is then you could scale it up to the rest of your batch size and add it to the keg, uh, or at the very least you can keep adding it by the glass. Uh, of course, the other solution is to brew a beer that's less bitter and blend them. But in terms of dealing with what you've got, that's the way I approach it. I start with calcium chloride. Yeah, and by the way, if you want to be super precise about that, just weigh your calcium chloride pinches on a on a gram scale. Well, I, I actually use a grain scale, which I think there is you. even more accurate. Our next question comes in from Gus Chambers, who texted us at 626-765-1-ale and left us his name. All right, Gus. Yeah. Gus says, hey there, Drew and Denny. Drew, I was reading your Cezanne write-up on the Maltose Falcons website about the spices included in the Cezanne Ete, the original recipe, and I'm curious why you don't use those spices anymore in your brew. 
too much character coming from the spices, as the Cezanne yeast you use provided enough character where the spices just get in the way? Have you tried cutting the quantities you've mentioned in the recipe? Just curious on what you think. Yep, I don't use the spices anymore because now I know how to use and abuse my yeast in order to get the spice characters I want out of it. So I'll use spices still sometimes in a saison, but if I'm just making like my classical saison, then I go straight straight ahead and just depend upon what's coming out of the yeast because, let's face it, those yeasts produce enough interesting characters now that why muddy it with the other things if I don't have to? Yeah, that's right, man. Uh, it just makes life easier, huh? Yep, it does. So that's the reason why I do it. And yeah, in terms of uh, recommendations, I tell people if they want to use the spices, they should probably start about half of what's in the original recipe. But uh, I don't use them anymore. So there you go. And then our final question comes in from Nate from Oregon, who also texted us at 626-7651-AL. And he asks, Drew, what do you have against using the word balance to describe beer? Well, <laughs> trying to think how to put this... In the most polite way. Oh, don't don't worry. Okay, fine. Here you go. The reason why I always ask the question, you know, describe your brewing philosophy omitting the word balance is to me that using the word balance, it's the lazy, cheap, easy answer that anyone can use. I like to brew beers that are balanced. Um, and when used in an answer about that question, it's – well, you're not getting anything useful out of it. I'm, what, what, what the hell do you mean by I like to make beers that are balanced? So that's part of the reason why I, I, I put that structure in there because I want to force people to think of what they actually mean when they're trying to say I like to brew balanced beers. And then also I'm, I'm a mean person <laughs> sometimes, and I really like to watch the look of confusion that hits almost every brewer I've asked that question of, with the exception of Roger Davis, who just instantly said hops. Yeah, but right. Every other brewer that you, that you do, there's literally a two to three second pause where you can just watch their face kind of go, huh? As they try it's, and figure out like how to definition, get away. It's like the definition of panic, right? Yeah. But to me, it's useful to ask that question that way. It's not, again, that, that I have anything inherently against the word balance. It's just that it's the cheap, easy, useless answer. It's like saying something's nice. Yeah, we're, we're trying to get these brewers to, to really think about what it is that inspires them to make their beer and, and tell us in a way that maybe you can get something out of. Yep. So there you go. There's a couple of uh, quick, uh, quick answers for you. Uh, don't forget that you can always send us questions at questions at experimentalbrew.com. You can text us or leave a voicemail at 626-7651-AL, or, well, you can find us in just about every other place that you can. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We're all over the place, uh, even at a train station in Leuven. There you go. All right, and so now it's time for a quick tip and something other than beer so that we can get you on your way. And uh, My quick tip for this uh, week is... Go back into your cellar and rearrange things. You'll be surprised at what you can find. I recently just had to do this because I've been rearranging part of my room. And so I went back through all the bottle boxes and whatnot that I have. And, hey, I found a, a lovely bottle of Ale Songs French 75 that I absolutely love that was hiding out there. And I've forgotten that yeah. I had. And I found a bottle of the Ale Song Bourbon Barrel Aged Barley Wine. It's interesting that we both found Ale Song beers hiding in the back of our stash, huh? 
Right. So go out there, rearrange what you got in your cellar, and remind yourself that you have good beer. Remember, your cellar is there to drink, not just to gather dust. Right. And in terms of something other this week, we got a couple things. I'll take the first one. Uh, I am Pei, an architect who is just renowned, has made some of the most uh, astounding buildings in the world, died. He was 102 years old. Man, so that guy had a good life. But when you look at the glass pyramid on top of the Louvre, you look at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, John F. Kennedy Library, these were all his designs. He came over from China not being able to speak English in about 1935, decided that uh, he was going to go to college over here uh, and learn to uh, be an architect, and by God, he did. Uh, great man, has done some great work, contributed a lot to uh, a lot of the architecture you see today. Uh, 102 years, good run, I.M. Pei. And at the same time, when I was at MIT, I worked at the MIT Media Lab, and uh, we, his building, or the Media Lab was designed by I.M. Pei, and all of us referred to it as the Pei Toilet. <laughs> well, a, a lot of white tile will do that. Yeah, right. And then my recommendation for something other than beer is a, a new book that I picked up, uh, actually I got for my birthday, uh, called Three Stones Make a Wall by Eric Klein. And it is a, I'm trying to think the best way to put it is a, a breezy, well-written primer on archaeology that kind of covers all of the great stories out there, like the discovery of Troy and King Tut, uh, and you know how those are reflective of early archaeological practices, then leading up to things like excavating at Masada and Megiddo and doing discoveries of the Mayans and how we're using LIDAR now to discover Mayan cities that have been lost in the jungles. And, you know, talking about how these strategies and also uh, how other things have changed, including our inherent cultural biases that we bring to studying things. And the title, the three stones make a wall, comes from an old archaeological axiom that he puts up in the front of the book, that one stone is a stone, two stones is a feature, three stones is a wall, Four stones is a building, and five stones is a palace. And because of modern uh, sort of um, armchair archaeologists offering wild theories about uh, things, he's added a new line, which is, six stones is a palace built by aliens. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, and it's you know, a 400-page book, but it, it, is, it is a light, fun read, talking about all sorts of different things about archaeology, including a number of the great stories. So... Go and pick that up. Three Stones Makes a Wall by Eric Klein. All right. I guess it's about time to get out of here and let people get their lives back, huh? Seems like it. They've listened to me talking about Belgium long enough. So thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram and a whole bunch of other places. Drew hangs out on the homebrewing subreddit and the Slack homebrew channel. I'm on a bunch of different beer forums, uh, most notably the uh, AHA discussion forum, and uh, a lot of time on Facebook also, so you can find us there. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com 
Or if you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at ExperimentalBrew.com, and he is Drew at ExperimentalBrew.com. And don't forget, you can always leave us a voicemail or text at 626-765-1AL. Be sure to tell us your name so we can uh, give you credit on the air. Until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.